I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trey. Welcome everyone to the 29th episode of the Trey Podcast. It's the 29th, right? I hope so. Okay, I'll edit this out if it's not correct. Great. We're inching closer and closer to double high. What is double high? 36. Okay, I'm not, I'm not excellent at the math. I went to an orthodox high school. <laughs> Self-burn, but um, I mean 18 and 18. Yeah, I, I know. I get the concept. Okay. Uh, so Sam, before we talk about all the things that we are supposed to be talking about today, I just wanted to apologize. I, I, I was criticizing you for telling me that I should be watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I stopped because it was really bad. And you told me to keep on going, so I kept on going, and I, I did not like what I saw, but I just got to the fourth season, and I finished it, and it was really good. So uh, I'm sorry, and thank you for, for pushing me through. Persistence pays off. And for folks who don't know what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is, it is, I believe, an ABC television program. In collaboration with Marvel Studios. That addresses this <laughs> government, non-governmental entity called S.H.I.E.L.D. I love that I've put you in the situation of having to explain this show. <laughs> So uh, apologies to all our listeners for uh, deviating from our focus temporarily. Uh, I think we have a name for this segment. You know what it is. I don't know what it is. It's David's Comic Book Corner. Oh, man. David's Comic Book Corner would have gone very differently than this. <laughs> all right. We can retool the segment for the future. Sounds good. Definitely have a lot of grapes for David's Comic Book Corner. <laughs> all right. So we're moving away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to a different kind of universe. Yeah. And that other universe is the world of institutional Judaism in Canada. Part of, part of the history of the Canadian Jewish community that we don't feel is being told particularly well uh, or hasn't been told particularly well over the past 10 years. I think, David, we should reflect for a second on how good that seg was. That was very well done. Very well done. <laughs> At the end of the year, I might nominate that for best segue. I mean, I think it's a front runner already. <laughs> so on the show today, we, we spoke with two people about the period of time that we're describing as the destruction of the Canadian Jewish Congress. Um, Sam, do you want to maybe give people a bit of a backstory on what that group is? Yeah, sure. So the Canadian Jewish Congress has been around since 1919. It served as the principal gathering point for most Canadian Jewish organizations and also was a lobbying organization. But over the course of the decades, had different functions and served different roles when different people were in charge. Yeah, and what we wanted to talk about in the show today is its destruction, why it no longer exists and what the organizations were that destroyed it and what was motivating them in that. And in that regard, we got in touch with two very distinct people. The first is Bernie Farber, who was once the chief executive officer of the Canadian Jewish Congress, and Dan Freeman Malloy, who is a PhD student, activist, academic. Yeah, and, and it was interesting to speak with Bernie Farber because I know when we were both growing up, he was sort of the face of the institutional Jewish community at that point. The, the Canadian Jewish Congress was the top of, of the structure at that period of time. Like, Sam, when you were growing up, did you have any interaction with sort of the CJC era, Canadian institutional uh, world? No, I mean, it wasn't as present as, for example, the federations were, you know, like it felt like the federation was the way that we interacted with the powers that be in the community. And not surprisingly, I I don't think that we learned a great deal about the history of Canadian Jewry, right? Like, or Quebec Jewry, for example, we really, our, our historical focus in school was always on Israel, and it was always on the Holocaust. And we didn't really learn that much about the kind of original institutions that emerged in Canada or in Quebec. Yeah, and I mean, in Montreal, the Jewish Federation here was recently celebrating its 100th anniversary. And it's part of what inspired us to put out this episode, because the Jewish Federations were the ones that decided to destroy the Canadian Jewish Congress and replace it with an Israel lobby. And uh, I wanted to talk a bit more about what happened and remind everybody of the role the Federation played. 
With that being said, this is your episode of Trafe for the 29th of ER, 5777. Okay, so I'm Bernie Farber. I am presently the executive director of the Mosaic Institute. Um, in the past, for almost 25 years, I worked with, uh, actually more than 25 years, I worked with the Jewish Congress, the last seven years of which I was its chief executive officer. Uh, well, Bernie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do this. So to start off, I feel like we should we should say that as a leftist Jewish podcast, there are some political differences that we have with each other, uh, but we're not here to talk about any of those questions today. We're not here to have any debates. We're here to talk about the Canadian Jewish Congress. The late lamented Canadian Jewish Congress. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering if just to get it started, you can talk about when you first got involved with the CJC. Well, I, I got involved with the CJC in 1984, and I actually I came out of the union movement. So we, we may not be as far apart on leftist politics as you think. I was working, I had been seconded to uh, OPSU, which is the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, after working 10 years as a social worker with the Children's Aid Society. And uh, I was directed to Canadian Jewish Congress from the late High Hotchberg, who was the president and CEO of the Ottawa Jewish Federation. And at the time, they were looking for a, a lobbyist to work at Queen's Park. And um, I took on that position and went from there to the Community Relations Committee of Canadian Jewish Congress. And from there, the rest is history. You know, I, uh, I ended up being the national director and eventually its CEO. So uh, a long history working with what I believe was an honorable organization, whose major focus really was human rights. You, you may recall at the time that there were two or three different organizations that reportedly represented various factions within the Jewish community. In terms of advocacy for Israel, there was an organization known as the CIC, which was a Canada-Israel committee. Um, and, then, and then, of course, there was Hillel and, 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 uh, and other groups, which actually, I believe, <laughs> worked rather well. And so, you know, it's, it's dissolution, I think, surprised a lot of people in the end, but I guess we'll get to that part later on. Yeah, yeah. Before we get to the dissolution, I guess, could you talk about what your understanding of the CJC was when you were part of it, how that kind of related to the vision of the Congress before you joined and kind of how that changed over time? Well, you know, I grew up in Ottawa. Jewish population of Ottawa was about 3,000 when, when, when I grew up there in the 50s and 60s. And Canadian Jewish Congress was an iconic organization. It was a legendary organization. It was referred to as the Parliament of Canadian Jewry. And believe it or not, you know, I think your younger listeners will kind of get a little bit of a kick out of this, more than any other Jewish organization that I could think of anywhere, and that would, by the way, include the United States. It did have a grassroots uh, feel to it. We had over 300 people as part of the executive of Canadian Jewish Congress. It always had this ability to go back to its grassroots, which is what very much I enjoyed about the organization itself, that it wasn't top-down, it wasn't really bottom-up. 
By the time it dissolved, there were many changes that Congress had to go through. Most of it funder demanded in terms of people who funded uh, UJA and that type of thing. But in, in its essence, Canadian Jewish Congress really was exactly what its name implied. It was a Congress of Canadian Jews. So that was my vision when I started in 84. I saw it as a, a human rights organization, a civil rights organization. And as the years went by, mainly we tried to stick to that. We weren't always successful, and there were justifiable criticisms of CJC. Uh, and, and to this very day, I'm, I'm very close to a number of those leaders because of the work that we did maybe 20 years ago. As the federations, like you were saying, representing the, the funders in the Jewish community, started to exert more influence over the CJC's operations, like how did that materialize in your job? What was your relationship like with the federations during that time? Well, I was a little bit shielded, I have to say, because there were some very strong... See, the thing about Congress was that it always had a buffer of what I would call strong lay leadership. UJA had a completely different philosophy, a completely different way of operating. They were professionally driven, and Congress was very much lay-driven. And they, because of their force of personality, they were able to shield Congress for a very long time. When these strong personalities began to pass away, began to move on, we had less of that ability to be shielded from, you know, from the moneyed people, from those providing resources. And it became quite clear to me, at least before I left, that it was going to be their way or the highway. It became clear that they wanted to have an advocacy organization that was both a strong advocacy voice for Israel, plus maybe doing some human rights work. That's when, you know, the shift really, really happened. And uh, that's where, at least for me, it became clear that I was no longer going to be part of that kind of an advocacy uh, organization. Could you maybe identify around what time period this started to happen and kind of give yeah. your version of how this happened? Well, I, I think mid-2000s, probably after Keith Landy's uh, presidency, things began to, um, how shall I say this, to turn in a direction that, at least for me, was, was quite uncomfortable. So it was about 2005, 2006. And by the way, the interesting part is it was at around that time that I became CEO of Canadian Jewish Congress. And by 2008, it became pretty clear uh, that things were changing rapidly. We, we had, for the first time, co a co-presidency. And um, it was at that time that the first iteration of CJA was set up in the mid-2000s. And that was the beginning of the end for Canadian Jewish Congress and for CIC and for all the other Jewish organizations. The first iteration was really a, an umbrella in which all the Jewish groups would come together and whose funding would be funded through that umbrella. That's all it was supposed to be. In the long run, of course, it turned into what some have even called a corporate takeover. So just getting back to that period of the takeover, about a month and a half, it happened in July of 2011 when CJA formally took over and then dissolved yeah. the Congress. And about a month and a half before that happened, I think it's important to say that you stepped down as CEO uh, to run for yeah. the provincial liberals in Thornhill. Yeah. And, and for a time, CJA was actually saying publicly that you were technically on leave with them, uh, being, I guess, yeah. your new boss. And I imagine that quite a bit was going on behind the scenes at that time. And can you just talk a bit about what happened after your campaign ended? Like, were you working for CJA for a bit? Never. <laughs> 
So let's go back a bit. I mean, by, by 2010, the rubber was hitting the road in terms of what was going on and what was going to occur. And it was becoming increasingly clear to me that we were going to have this one marketplace where everything was going to take place under one roof. There would no longer be a CJC. There would no longer be a CIC. Plus, it became clear to me that the emphasis was shifting very much to the right, in which the entire emphasis was going to be on Israel advocacy. But my experience and my uh, passion was always in the human and civil rights area. So when this was becoming clear to me, I, I was approached by the Ontario Liberals to run in Thornhill, which was not just a heavily Jewish writing, which of course it is, but it was a very heavy conservative writing. As a matter of fact, my, my wife said to me after the election, I think as a, as a way to try to mollify me to a certain extent, because it was pretty close, really. Yeah, it 6%. Was, you know, uh, she said, Moshe Rabbeinu could have run as a liberal in Thornhill and he would have lost. <laughs> and she was quite right. Um, but that aside, it was an opportunity for me. I mean, I mean, I was going into it to win. But I had to have kind of a plan in case things didn't work out. And I was owed a leave of absence, which I took at the beginning of my campaign. And then when it was over and I had lost, and I have, you know, to be truthful, I, I was offered a position to work with Sija as, you know, a senior vice president. But I knew that this wasn't something that I could do and be happy. Uh, I mean, I've been very lucky in life. Virtually every job I've ever had over a period of 35 years, I've enjoyed every single minute of it. And I wasn't going to get involved in a, in a job in which, uh, A, I felt I wasn't suited for, and B, I didn't want to do. So I, I, I took this extended leave of absence. And um, when it was over, I went to work with a different organization. But that's really what happened. I, you know, I chose not to work for CJA. I was very clear about it. I never worked one day for CJA, really, other than if you want to count that leave of absence, because it was a paid leave of absence and then went from the Paloma Foundation to where I am now with Mosaic Institute. So to try and just tie a bow around the analysis of CJA and its relationship to CJC, it's clear from your answers that individually this wasn't something that made sense for you. Not at all. Both me and David do not feel like CJA's place in the Jewish landscape in Canada is a very healthy one. I guess I wonder how you understand its role what do you think the concrete differences are now, and, and what are some of those ramifications? Well, there's two or three concrete differences. The first and major piece was this noticeable shift to the right. Now, listen, I, uh, when, when I was with Congress, we played in every political pool, every political swimming pool. We had to swim in, each, in every pool, whether it was progressive, conservative, liberal, NDP, Parti Québécois, Bloc Québécois, it didn't matter. We understood that politics is fickle, and one day it may be a conservative government, the next day it may be a liberal government, the next day an NDP government. CJA became really a voice for Canadian Jewry at the time within a conservative government. I mean, it was clear that Prime Minister Harper was a strong friend of Israel, and wrongly, in my view, it was seen that we had to be completely supportive, politically and otherwise, of that view. And that became, and you know, I, I wrote about it at the time, and I spoke about it at the time, a very disagreeable way of doing advocacy. You don't put all your political eggs in one basket. And virtually, by the way, not just Seja now, but 
the same thing happened with the neighbors Canada, which is today very much a shell of what it used to be. And well, I don't know if we count the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal because they're really a, very much a private organization. But there has been this noticeable shift within the organized Jewish community. We've started using the term institutional Jewish community, if you'd like to use that in the future. It's not a bad term, actually. I think it, it works well. I, I hate the term official Jewish community, <laughs> and I think institutional is actually quite good. There's one other point I should make. Sure. And that is the shift away from human rights and civil rights. Congress, with all of its warts and with all of its faults, was a human rights organization. I mean, we, at times, back in the 1990s and even in the early 2000s, we worked very closely with the African-Canadian communities, uh, with the Chinese-Canadian communities, with other Southeast Asian communities, in relation to issues centering around discrimination and bigotry and anti-racism. Congress was very much a leader in all of that. And today, the fact of the matter is that we are no longer seen as that light of human rights. It's just not part of the overall main agenda. But from time to time, they'll get involved in issues if it directly affects the Jewish community. But the beauty of Congress was we were directly involved in issues that affected other communities first before it affected us. And that, to me, was a wonderful thing. It really brought COVID, you know, to to Canadian Jewry. And that's gone. We've become much more a parochial uh, community than we ever were, even back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems to me like you're in this role where you're in constant dialogue with people with the politics that Sija is expressing here. And and this this sort of leads me to our last question, which is, do you think that your politics have changed at all since the time when you were at the helm of the CJC. I knew you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> well, because, yeah, because, like, in the early 2000s, you made a lot of public statements about BDS being anti-Semitic or described independent Jewish voices as being anti-Jewish. Are these still things that you believe, or do you feel like you, you've changed well, your okay, take? Let's, I mean, there's certain specific things that, that I still believe. Remember, I was working as the voice of the Canadian Jewish community, and I tried as hard as I could to be even keeled based on my own set of principles. But I was in a bit of a cocoon. And, um, you know, have, have I changed my views? I'm not so sure I've changed my views as much as I have been able to expand my thinking and open my mind. I'm still not a fan at all of BDS, and that's something that we, you know, we can have a back and forth on all the time. Mm-hmm. I was for sure not a big fan of independent Jewish voices, both then and now. The difference, I suppose, now is that I would have more, uh, more of, a, uh, of an openness. There, there are many people who are involved, I know, in various different causes on the left who post on, you know, on my Facebook and you know, res- respond to my, my Twitter feeds all the time. Once you leave your cocoon, you have this ability to reshape and realign uh, your thinking. Look, I, I consider myself a progressive Zionist. I love the state of Israel. I am a, a big supporter of the state of Israel. I'm not a great Netanyahu fan. So, you know, I, there's a lot of ups and downs in my thinking, and, and my thinking will evolve all of my life. But there are certain things that will remain rock solid, and, you know, I, I kind of know where I am now in, in, the, in the progressive scale, if you want to put it that way. And I, I know this more through the company I keep now. You know, I mean, I, I'm engaged very much in the non-Jewish community. And many people, authors and playwrights and politicians, have all come to me and said, you know, what's happened to this 
you know, wonderful Jewish community that was so progressive and so forward-thinking. How did this happen? And I'm at sometimes a great loss to, to, to explain it. All they have to do is listen to this podcast and they get a better idea. <laughs> Can I ask you one last question? Sure. If you were head of the CJC today, if the CJC existed today, mm-hmm. do you think there would be space for Jewish groups that weren't Zionist? Because even the Canadian Jewish News, to a certain extent, or CJA has made very clear that they're defining the terms of the community in terms of people who are Zionist and people who aren't Zionist. Do you feel like there would be space for groups and individuals who didn't believe in the Zionist project? Guys, it's a very good question. But the fact of the matter is that as far back as you go with Canadian Jewish Congress, you know, part of the element of of what it was, was uh, there there was a Zionist um, piece to it, a huge Zionist piece to it. So I, I don't think that any mainstream Jewish organization could exist anywhere without a strong Zionist element, and that would have to be part and parcel of Canadian Jewish Congress. So the answer is, I, I don't think so. And it, it doesn't mean that you know, non-Zionists can't form their own groups and you know, take on the mainstream, which is really what should be done. But if you're looking at a mainstream Canadian Jewish Congress, it will always, and if it existed, they would still have a very strong Zionist element to it, albeit a progressive one. I, I really appreciate that answer. It's actually quite nice to have a conversation with someone like yourself who's, I mean, willing to be honest with us. Well, I, uh, I, I've, I've listened to a number of your broadcasts, actually, and I've quite enjoyed them, haven't always agreed with everything, <laughs> but uh, that's what makes life beautiful. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Be well. Hi, Trafe. This is JB Brager. I'm calling from Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm currently visiting my grandparents. And I wanted to share with you a little bit of family lore. My great grandmother, she tells my aunt that when Hitler came to power, she was engaged to Eric Levy, my great grandfather. He was very known in the sport of boxing. He had the heavyweight championship in 1928. She says that same night, very dear friends of his helped him to get out of Germany. The reason why he had to get out of Germany so fast, because he had a fight which went into court with Goebbels, which he did win, and would he have stayed, they would have killed him the next day. It is verified that my great-grandfather was a heavyweight boxer and that he liked to fight Nazis. I don't know if it was with Goebbels, but my opa, Eric Levy, is speaking to everyone beyond the grave and saying that there are many things that you should do with Nazis, but one of those things is definitely punching them in the face. Dan Freeman Malloy. Um, I'm usually based in Montreal, now in East Jerusalem, and politically active with you guys for a while. 
Yeah, I feel like because we're we're straight shooters and we're uh, journalistic standards, we should we should mention <laughs> that uh, we are all friends and have organized together before. <laughs> there is that. Um, so, Dan, the the principal reason that we asked you on the show is that we want to talk about the Canadian Jewish Congress, the collapse of the Canadian Jewish Congress, but also the creation of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And you're you're one of the few people that have written extensively about this period of time. And can you maybe just talk a bit about the first time you learned about this shift that was happening? Well, I guess as a campus activist in the war on terror years, I was really struck that whatever sort of social justice or anti-war work we tried to do, uh, one of the principal adversaries we'd come up against was the organized Zionist community and those who sort of called themselves Israel advocates. And it was quite obvious that they were punching beyond the weight that their skills would have dictated. So I did a lot of them looking into, you know, what were the organizational underpinnings of Israel advocacy in Canada? And I wrote sort of a long piece about it in 2006, but mostly pouring over the sort of the Canadian Jewish News Archives and some of the scholarship back in probably 2004. The the article that David just referred to is uh, called APAC North. It seems to be the one that most people refer to when talking about the institutional Jewish community and its relationship to Zionism and, and to Palestine. Um, would you feel comfortable sketching the outline of the piece? Yeah, I mean, the particular piece I wrote sort of a decade ago, so would probably frame a little bit differently now. But in any event, the point that I would make is that there have been two processes connected that have really reshaped the Canadian Jewish community over the last decades. And those are, on the one hand, the rise within the community of a fundraiser-dominated leadership, in which, again, those with money have sort of control over how the organizations function. And on the other, the rise of Israel advocacy or support and association with Israel as a principal priority. And what's happened decade by decade is the streamlining of the historic set of Canadian Jewish organizations into what now amount for basically a corporate Israel advocacy apparatus. And what the piece tries to do is sort of sketch that history out. And of course, since 2006, when the piece came out, those processes have only continued to pace. And in terms of this transformation, uh, it seems like the most recent phase of that transformation was the destruction of the Canadian Jewish Congress reconstituted within the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. And can you talk a bit about how that came about? Yeah, I mean, it's a long story. What I'll maybe start by just saying is there could be a principled Zionist critique of the corporate Israel advocacy structure that I refer to. And in fact, there has been. And when I say principled, I don't mean principles we agree with. But in 2011, for example, as you mentioned, the sort of fundraiser-dominated leadership in the organizations that we can get to the details of just dissolved the Canadian Jewish Congress. For a long time, it had been subordinate to them, but then they just sort of dispensed with the pretense. And one of Canada's most prominent, long-standing Zionist ideologues, Michael Brown, wrote a piece for the Canadian Jewish News. And what he said was that the dissolution of the CJC, and I'm quoting, will mark the final step in what he saw as the Jewish Americanization of Canadian Jewry. But then he added the move from democracy to paternalistic plutocracy. And this is, again, a sort of stalwart Zionist on the Canadian scene over many decades So these organizations have no representative claim. And it's my understanding from us chatting before the show that the federation system has been stressing its long and illustrious history in Canada with 
apparently the centennial of the establishment of the main Jewish federations in Toronto and Montreal. And it's really out of that history that this this fundraising-dominated leadership has emerged that swept the other organizations to the side. Dan, for um, people who don't have any historical context for the CJC, whether they're in the U.S. or they're younger Canadians or in other parts of the world, could you talk a little bit about what the CJC was and if that model was replicated, let's say, in the U.S. or in other parts of Europe? So the CJC, as I recall, was established first in 1919 and then had a sort of brief history before being revived in the 1930s. And it's always been billed since the 1930s as the Canadian Jewish Parliament, as the Parliament for All Canadian Jews, this sort of democratic forum in which uh, Jews from across Canada come together and make decisions and have this representative body. That's one history, and we can talk about how that developed into the late decades of the 20th century. But there are a couple of other things that sort of are part of this history. One is the establishment within the Canadian Jewish community of organizations from early on that were not representative or even pretended to be, but that represented the the fundraisers of the community, the philanthropists, as they would have it, which were (laughs) constituted in 1916 in both Toronto and in Montreal as the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies. We now know those as in Toronto, the United Jewish Appeal Federation of Greater Toronto, and in Montreal, the Combined Jewish Appeal. The other side is the Zionist movement. And to put the story as shortly as I can, after the Second World War, And in the 1940s, as Israel's founding prime minister wanted to get as much Western Jewish support as he could, financial in particular, for establishing the Israeli state, some real changes happened in international Zionist organizing. It used to be that the Zionist organizations, the Zionist Organization of Canada, the Zionist Organization of America, were the main Zionist groups. Ben-Gurion intervened to change this, and what he basically did was say, okay, I want the federations to dominate, not the traditional Zionist organizations. They just didn't have access to the same money as the federations. So beginning in the 1940s and 1950s, the main Western representatives of partnership with Israel came to be the federations. And that has been the sort of alliance that has reshaped everything. Israel has cultivated these links with the North American Jewish federations to the point where in the 1970s, a formal link was created with the incorporation of Jewish federations like that in Toronto and Montreal into the Israeli state system effectively or in association with it through a quasi-state group called the Jewish Agency for Israel. Now, I know it sounds like a complicated organizational history, but the point that I want to make is not only did the fundraising federations take control of the Canadian Jewish Congress gradually through their financing muscle, They also formally affiliated themselves with the Israeli state and subordinated the CJC and everything else under their control to tasks like Israel advocacy. And again, it's out of that process that we have this sort of Israel lobby, as people think of it, coming into the late 20th century. So bringing things back to the more recent history of the Canadian Jewish Congress, at least toward the last 10 years of its existence, there was real conflict between the CJC and the Federation structure about who was really in charge. Um, can you mm-hmm. talk, Can you take us a bit to that period and how it led to the demise of the CJC? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll apologize for going earlier, but really where, where the turning point was in the 1970s. 
And what happened is at that point, the federations started to formally swallow up local operations of the CJC. And it was a very contentious fight from the beginning. So in Toronto, there were people in the Canadian Jewish Congress, the leaders, who said that, okay, the Canadian Jewish Congress is supposed to be the parliament. The federations are supposed to be the Ministry of Finance. We have a situation, they, they said literally, in which the Ministry of Finance is becoming the dictator of parliament. So the CJC can talk about, or could, when it existed, talk about having some formal autonomy, but it hasn't since the 70s. So what happened in the 2000s is not an entirely novel process. It's just the pretense is over. So the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, I believe it's now called, CJA, was initially established in 2004. And what they did is they brought together the biggest, some of the biggest fundraisers from the community and some from outside, and they said, okay, we are the center of power as of 2004. Everything is subordinate to us. People in the CJC made complaints. They said, look, you have been agents of our structure for years now. That is the relationship you're subordinate to us. This is what's happening. And they proceeded to remake everything. So what I find most concerning about this process is that what they tried to do was then launch an assault on Palestine solidarity movements in line with largely pro-Israel priorities. But a byproduct of this process was also the elimination of any pretense of communal democracy and the downgrading of the CJC's status. So Dan, for, for, again, for people who are outside of Canada or, or just aren't familiar with what the current structure here looks like, can you outline that? Like, what does it look like today? What exists now? The main difference in looking at sort of the organizational outlook is that in the U.S., the federation systems are the formal, recognized in Israeli law partners with Israel, right? And then on the other hand, you have the lobbying groups like APAC. In Canada, that all forms part of one single system. Until 2011, there was the CJC, now it's done. The Canada-Israel Committee, Canada's pro-Israel lobby since 1967, done. CJA constituted itself as sort of a federation Politburo, with a group who sort of run things and exercise influence on behalf of the Federation decision-making structure. And under that, you have a range of other organizations. But with CJA at the head and a sort of Federation power base as the decision-making authority that they draw upon, that's the power center that, that Israel Advocacy in Canada is subordinate to. So, so the process that you're outlining of the ascent of the donors as being more long-term, is the rise of Zionism as a singular priority for the Canadian Jewish community also been long-term, or is that more recent? I think it's been, it, it has definitely been long-term, but there have been contexts in which people talk with Zionism or with Jewish affiliation about dual loyalty. Am I going to be a patriot to the state in which they belong or to the Jewish people? In Canada, this has not been an issue with Zionism. The principal boost to Zionism historically was Britain's occupation of Palestine in 1917 and its issuance of support for the Zionist movement through the Balfour Declaration of 1917. In Canada, that meant I mean, Canada was very much part of the British Empire at the time, that if you want to be a proud British imperialist, you support Zionism. This is work of the empire. It's fulfilling both some supposed Jewish purposes, but in addition, you can wave very proudly the Union Jack and profess your Zionist commitments. 
It's what was called patriotic Zionism, and it existed throughout the British sphere. And it's been exactly the same since 1967 in the orbit of U.S. power. So, I mean, since 67, Israel has been the sort of principal surrogate for U.S. power in the Middle East. And in Canada, if you want to be a sort of good Western patriot standing with civilization against the Eastern hordes, you can wave your Canadian and American and Israeli flags and endear yourself greatly to establishment wasps in Canada. There's really not going to be a whole lot of concern about where your loyalties lie. And, I mean, during the war on terror, when you have people stressing Jewish identification or support for Israel as some sort of narrow commitment, it's certainly true that that's come to sweep and to dominate the Canadian Jewish community. But the Canadian Jewish community has very comfortably slid into that position. And I, I think it's in that context that we need to understand it, this sort of patriotic Zionism that merges a Western alliance patriotism, if you will, with this sort of singular focus on Israel. So before we let you go, we've been focusing a lot on the historical, a lot of the processes that kind of inform where we're at today. But I was also wondering if you could discuss um, how we should be relating to these institutions today, whether it's CJAR, the federations, like how should folks organizing in North America be thinking about these institutions and how they relate to them? I think the most important reality to always keep in our minds is the severity of the crisis right now in Palestine. The most important thing to remember about organizations like CJA is that these are advocates for and affiliates of a state that is systematically conducting severe war crimes. These organizations seek to attack Palestine solidarity and anti-war movements as anti-Semitic or what have you. And I think we just need to be prepared to sort of put them back on the defensive whenever they try to enter the public arena on these questions saying, if you that are the affiliates of this state committing these war crimes and you have no moral authority to do a damn thing. So I think that's a role for Jewish dissidents in particular to take very seriously in the period ahead as CJA and its sort of various satellite organizations try to attack the, the Palestine Solidarity Movement. I feel like that's as good of a place to end this interview as any. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Nice to chat. Rabbi Akiva once said, Capital is dead labor, which vampire-like lives only by sucking living labor. It's time for Squail. Welcome to Squail. <laughs> yes, it's been a while, but I think we say that every time, so maybe I won't say that again this time. Do we? Well, I mean, it seems like we're putting out more shorts, so the episodes aren't as bunched together as they uh, sometimes are right now. It's true, but I guess as a listener, I'd be bored to hear us keep saying that it's happened. Yeah, conversation canceled. Yeah. Sam, what's your squeach for today? So my squeach is an anti-squeach, and I know you asked me to give a positive one, but such is life. I think it was actually me who said last time that I had to do a positive one this time, so I think you're off the hook. So my anti-squeach might require a little bit of explaining. Okay, I'm strapping myself in. Just imagine those uh, automated seatbelts from the Star Trek reboots going over my body. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you need a seatbelt. Um, to stop me from escaping out of, uh, <laughs> out of uh, boredom. Yeah, well, actually, brace yourself on that front. I spent the last uh, 24 months 
studying a particular area of academia. Yeah, it's called law. It's called law. And um, one thing that I've really come to grasp in this last couple of months is how much the entire charade of law is the result of the sham of discretion. I don't know what that means, Sam. So like the the government gives power to administrative bodies to use their discretion, whether it's like an immigration uh, labor board or it's a prison yeah. or the discretion that judges have to like use the spectrum of their perspective. Yeah, it's kind of like Rabbi Akiva once said, gaze into the law and the law will gaze back at you. <laughs> I mean, not exactly, but I like that we've had so many good Rabbi Akiva quotes today. But ultimately, yes. Yeah, so fuck discretion. Um, it's a scam. Legal system is a scam. So law, law school is uh, it's feeling rough right now. I mean, I'm done for the year, but I but there's just something that really grinds my gears about how basically the law pretends that the people that they're going to put in power to make these decisions aren't going to have basically the same set of ideas and decision-making outcomes. So there's like a charade about trying to limit discretion, but ultimately everyone's going to make the same decision. And usually it's going to be a bad decision. So you're, you're essentially <laughs> condemning the institution of law itself. 100%. I just try to bring it down to a little ridiculous argument that ends up taking up so much time mm. i mean for our listeners who are learning for the first time that you are studying the law sam yes you maybe uh explain the direction that those studies are hoping to lead you in or what your aspirations oh, no. are not at all just complaining okay yeah <laughs> i think this is enough anti square for the day okay so with my anti square being to discretion the entire canadian legal system what is your square for the week so my square is going to the Palestinian political prisoners who are today on their 22nd day of an organized hunger strike. Yeah, David, I'm really happy that you are bringing this up in this segment. Yeah, I mean, uh, people who are listening to the podcast have, have probably heard about this. You might have read Marwan Barghouti's New York Times op-ed that explained the reasons for the strike. Uh, they launched a strike on April 17th, which is Palestinian Prisoners Day. And, and after that op-ed was published, the Israeli authorities actually started investigating his wife and his lawyers because they're saying that they helped publish the article. This is this is pretty mild in terms of the broader oppression that these prisoners are facing. But I, but I, but I feel like uh, for, for people who haven't heard about this, it's probably worth just saying a bit about the context of the strike, the, the fact that there is about 6,000 political prisoners and administrative detainees in Israeli jails right now. There's a 99% conviction rate within the military courts. About 40% of the West Bank's male population has been arrested by Israeli authorities since 1967 when they began occupying that territory. The demands of the hunger strikers, we're going to have a link in the show notes so you can read all of the demands. They're very straightforward. There's massive human rights abuses within Israeli prisons. The amount of political prisoners is constantly increasing. Please check this out. Support in any way you can. I know Adamir is doing a lot of, of great work, and we mentioned in one of our shirts about uh, ways to support them. We'll have the links uh, in the show notes today as well. The only thing I have to add here is please support political prisoners in North America as well. Uh, we have an episode coming out with someone who's doing frontline work in that regard. But yeah, please support all political prisoners, particularly in Palestine and in North America, and just the tremendous amount of solidarity to uh, folks who are um, on the inside. So that was our episode on the Canadian Jewish Congress. It is the first in our series of Canadian Jewish histories, which we will be putting out in the next couple of months. As Rabbi Kiva once said, keep your ears peeled. <laughs> 
David's actually putting together a zine on Rabbi Akiva's important saying, so please stay tuned for that. Yeah, about 90% of the funds we're raising for our Patreon will actually be going to the publisher. <laughs> Speaking of, hopefully it's been two weeks of fruitful Patreon Patreoning, but if you have that extra $5... I think the Patreon is still open because it doesn't close. So please donate if you can. Also, uh, we've mentioned on the show before, uh, but we, we were at the Jewish Voice for Peace National Members Meeting in Chicago last month. And, and we recorded a, a series of interviews while we were there. And, and so in, in the weeks to come, we're going to start releasing those. So keep your eyes peeled. Trafe Podcast is Sambic and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Many thanks to Claire Hertig, to Kira Page, to Caden O'Neill, to C. Lavery, to Ariana Katz, to Sax Indrum, and to Josh Dolgan. As always, you can follow us on the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. Support our Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Send us emails of all varieties, trafepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. And send Sam letters of support to get through the rest of law school. Nah. We'll see you in two weeks. It's